2: I live in Washington, D.C. I mostly cover national politics, but personally, I'm really fascinated in how cities work, how state governments work, uh, municipal government, zoning regulations, uh, housing policy, and and the interplay of all this. Uh, I had a kind of wide-ranging conversation on these subjects with Yale Law Professor David Schleicher, who thinks a lot about how political institutions and the design of political parties winds up impacting these policy outcomes. Uh, So check it out. I, I think it's really fascinating. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have David Schleicher. He's a professor of law at Yale Law School. Uh, you've got got wide ranging interests, uh, but but I think a, a lot of your work is on the question of sort of how does local and state government work in the American system, and you know I think maybe one way into this is like. A take people have all the time is that like, well, we should be paying more attention to what happens in state and local government. And I think like everybody agrees with that because clearly we should because these governments are really important. And yet I can tell you as like a media professional, like we never actually do. That seems accurate, yes. <laughs> I'm like, why is that? Like, is it,
1: are are we all idiots or? Maybe, I don't know. No, it's a, uh, it's a, I, why don't you pay more attention to state and local government? I mean, I think part of it is that you have limited resources. And in fact, many things that are quite interesting are federal. And so issues of war and peace, issues of monetary policy, issues of Keynesian stimulus, medicare are kind of off the local agenda and so if you only have limited attention span it's not crazy to think that you would focus on national politics also covering local politics requires actually knowing things about places and frequently being there and if you're going to be in washington it's a little a little more difficult to do those things um but i mean i think more broadly the way to take this is that covering local politics even state local frequently requires to have media institutions that are in those places and a lot of the things i write about about the decline of State and local elections representing local preference um, is uh, one one of the key stories. Is about the decline of state and local media, um, right. which which is a product of a particular economy that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. So, so
2: people get so you have national media outlets. I mean, whether it's Vox, it's Fox News, wh- whatever it is, our incentive is to cover national issues. It's it's what we can do well. It's how we reach our audience, and so then that's how people get their news. And so, then what what's the
1: consequence of that for how they vote? So, it turns out that there's this great research on the effect of the rise of independent newspapers and their decline. And one of the effects is when newspapers stop being partisan and start being independent papers, so ad supported, we see a huge rise in ticket splitting. People are able to distinguish their national party preference from their local party preference and so vote for a different party for a president than they do for city council. And then with the decline of those papers, with the rise of Internet media and cable news and whatever else, um, then decline of newspapers and the decline of uh, like classified ads and all of that stuff. We saw a corresponding decline, and so people have less a bit less information about local politics, to which to distinguish their beliefs about whatever it is their city is doing from whatever it is the president is doing. And I think that this is kind of a like a broader principle that we can apply across a bunch of things here, which is. Um, Democracy doesn't just work, right? Like it's not like you observe the federal government and you're like reading the minutes of what the FTC does and you say, "Ah, I thought that was really good what the Trump appointees did." Therefore, I'm a Republican. It's mediated, and you need mediating institutions in order for you to figure out what it is you think about a level of government or a government decision making or whatever it is. And the media and political parties are the two big mediating institutions. And to the extent those things are national, our preferences are going to be expressed at the national level, and we're going to have less ability to develop independent preferences about the things local government does or state government. And as a result, we're going to have less capacity to hold those officials accountable because we literally don't have any ability to develop information and opinions about what it is they're doing.
2: So like, I mean, we really saw this very consequentially in the in the 2010 midterms because it coincided with a a census year and a redistricting and it was a, a big swing to Republicans. Barack Obama had become very unpopular and so suddenly you see Republicans doing well in state legislatures everywhere and That's, I think, not because people made a fine-grained assessment of incumbent Democratic Party state senators, like, independently in hundreds of different races, and we're all like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm sick of this guy.
1: Yeah. So it turns out that the correlation between congressional vote and state legislative vote is about 95% now. So it's like people are just accusing their national party preference in state legislative races. And this even goes down to how we actually cover it. So when you read the Washington Post coverage of the Virginia state legislative elections in 2017. They say Virginia gives black eye to Trump. As if the people who were actually running for office and what they'd done in office was completely irrelevant. And this is a, a broader phenomenon that political scientists call second order elections, which you develop a level of, pre- of preference about one level of government, be it like the president of the United States or Congress or whatever, and you apply that in another election and it with paying no attention to what that government does. And so this theory was developed to talk about European parliament elections, mm-hmm. which are basically usually usually. Just referendums on the popularity of prime ministers or, you know, um, um and uh, I've applied it in my th- work to state and local elections. And so that's the idea is like people just develop a preference about Trump and then uh apply it to you know the city council race that are. Following. Right.
2: And so and so in theory, right? I mean, there's some overlap of issues, right? The federal government has a hand in abortion and so does state governments. So it makes sense that there would be a correlation
1: between the, your preferences, but also. They do do some fairly distinctive things. At the level of the individual voter, it makes perfect sense, right? So the level of the individual voter, if I know absolutely nothing about the people who um, I'm representing and voting for, it makes perfect sense to use whatever information you do have. And again, as you note, party preference, the way that the national party endorsement does tell you many things about state legislative races. You know, there's, a, there's a a lot of state budgets come from the federal government. Um, there's a big, pretty big issue correspondent. But there's a lot of issues that are different. Moreover, when we think about what elections achieve, part of it is about represent, representation, but another part of it's about accountability. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that with very few exceptions, the people in state legislatures could just do whatever. And it wouldn't matter whether their party was reelected. Again, I don't want to go – you shouldn't go too far with an absolute statement. Like, again, you can do things that will imperil yourself. Like when Kansas kind of really, really radically uh, slashed its taxes and destroyed its government a little bit, like there was a voter response um, uh, that it was specific to Kansas. Um, But it's – You know, you can go pretty close to that.
2: Right. It's pretty weak is what you're saying. There's not a lot of specific focus on did this group of people do their actual job well so much as there is like, I'm mad at Trump's tweets.
1: I'm upset about the performance of the Obama economy. So toss it. And this has really big implications for policy. So one is that you, that voters get a weird set of choices. They don't get things that are aimed at the median voter of their state. You get political parties in each state that are radically far away from one another, mm-hmm. and that's a weird—even if you are an informed voter, it's a weird choice to have to make because they're not competing for a majority of residents. Um, you also get a situation in which many states and many cities, one party, go- you get one-party governance, and the result of that is that voters in primaries— And interest groups end up dominating things. And so the Massachusetts legislature has been 90 10 Democrats, give or take, for 100 years. Mm -hmm. Who determines who wins things? It's the the 11 people who show up in state legislative primary elections. Um, And that is heavily biased towards a particular population of high information, usually homeowning voters.
2: Right. So, you know, so you're you're a law professor. We we were talking a little bit before the show about, uh, you know, legal scholarship's tendency to of Rome sometimes. Um, But I mean, this actually connects to some, you know, very important basic ways that we think about the constitutional order, right? Because a a sort of typical rhetoric in America is to talk about state government in a sort of idealized way that it's maybe closer to the people or that these are laboratories of democracy. But the presumption of all of that is that is that the people are paying attention.
1: Exactly right, and the the presumption to make it closer to the people, it is obviously a lower level of government, and therefore, right, it's literally closer literally <laughs> closer. I mean, that's important, right? You're in a state like New Hampshire. One out of every 400 people is a state legislator. Mm-hmm. That's like, not actually accurate, but you know, there are 400 rep- members of the represent- House of Representatives. It's very. Uh, on the other hand. Um, the this is where theory d- uh, kind of needs to deal with institutions and so you see in Supreme Court opinions in pre- pre- this like it's closer to the people and therefore it's worth the trade-off of not having national government with its greater expertise and ability to do cross transfer money across places to do things it's worth it because you get more specified preferences people can sort between them they can move if they want to and you get this laboratories of democracy stuff but that is premised in fact on like state democracy working and local democracy working and that requires or is reliant on institutions to make it work and the two big ones you can imagine would be media and party mm-hmm. local backlash parties
2: and i mean you know when this isn't a law of nature right i mean you mentioned europe right and so in in europe it tends to be the opposite people will say president macron is unpopular and therefore his party does poorly in the european parliament election even though that's higher level right right yeah. and, so, and so and so you would say there that like Whatever the virtues of doing things in Brussels are, that that is remote from the people and that those uh, members of parliament are not closely monitored. They don't necessarily reflect real preferences or, you know, considered opinion about performance. And the national governments, like they're small, there's limits to what they can do, but they're closer to the
1: people. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the question is the level of the institutions as much as it is the structure of government. Mm-hmm. It's the, the meat of government rather than it's kind of a government is a flowchart. chart. I, right. I mean, European Parliament is a fascinating institution in this regard. It's a uh, someone has said uh, that nothing a member of European Parliament has ever done, and nothing a your Euro- member of European Parliament has ever said has ever affected a European Parliament election. And I don't know if I'd go that far, but you can get real close to it. Uh,
2: right, and I mean this goes to the extent that like. In Europe, right, like if you if you go to, to Brussels or or Strasbourg and I've been there and they they sit in it, it's like a parliament, right? They they sit in these party block groups and the parties have names um and
1: stuff like that. But literally no one knows. It's right. Like the but then, EPP, right. But PP, yeah. right? Right.
2: But then if you if you look at the ballot, it's completely different. Because what, what happens is that like in the parliament, there's a European People's Party, which is like an agglomeration of most of the mainstream center-right parties. There's a party of European socialists. Um, there's a alliance of liberals and Democrats for Europe. But then if you go to vote, you see the name of your
1: national party. It's Christian Democrat Party. It's- uh, So among other things, that I've proposed- as a solution to this problem in the context of European Parliament, that they should pass laws that encourage the, national, the international names or the Europe, Europe-wide right. names to pe- actually appear on the ballot. So the idea is that there's in uh, some countries, Nigeria kind of most notably, there are distribution requirements that in order to win, you need to win a certain number of votes in a certain number of states. Mm-hmm. And this would, if you pass this rule for European Parliament election, the effect of this would be that rather than seeing the conservatives on the ballot, you would see the EPP on the ballot. And the Uh idea is that this would allow voters to reflect their preferences about whatever it is the European Parliament is doing rather than just reflect on like is Boris Johnson a clown?
2: It's a question of like a a seemingly superficial kind of change, right? Like how do the names go, right? But the, the hypothesis is that you can have meaningful impact
1: on people's behavior based on these these kind of labels because the labels send a message yeah i mean one of the things that you if you study uh voter kind of voter behavior and voter ignorance information on the ballot is the most salient by far because you can be pretty sure people are looking at it when they're voting because they're looking at it when they're voting. And a lot of the reforms, kind of the simpler reforms, the less controversial ones, involve providing information that's on the ballot. So one idea I have about solving this problem at the federal versus kind of the state level is most voters have no idea which party controls their state legislature unless it's been the same one forever. Um, And this isn't just like... Oh, you stupid people who don't follow state politics, it's literally no one knows this. I mean, so I mean, you can know it if you follow politics closely, but if you ask very, very informed people who their state representative is or what's being voted on their state legislature, they have no clue. Um, one thing you could do is you could put the information about who controls the state legislature uh-huh. on the ballot itself such that people who are happy about how things are going can think to vote for one party or the other based on the information you've actually given them at the moment of voting. Should I throw the bums out? Well, or who's who are the bums? I don't know.
2: Right. This is important because, I mean, from everything we can tell, the media trend here is continuing, if, if not. Accelerating. Getting right? much I mean, worse. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's there's less and less chance that a person, you know, living somewhere in the suburbs of Columbus is like actually reading articles yeah. about events in Ohio state government.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely likely getting worse. Um, and likely to get worse. There's some hope that these local media like, like kind of patch. Or um, are going to step into this void. The real problem is that it requires politicians to, like, take them seriously. So that's one thing. um, uh, And so that they are, like, fighting to get their information out through these institutions. um, But secondly, it requires people to read them.
2: Right. I mean, you know, I I, I always say that to people when when they talk about this, that it's like, you know, the proof is in the is in the pudding and in in for all the reasons that you might say that like in a civic sense you should pay more attention to state politics it deals a little bit more with concrete stuff and a little bit less with like big random symbolic topics but people get more emotionally invested in big big symbolic topics yeah. than in something like like what's the state department of transportation
1: doing with the highway yeah, absolutely i mean When we think about how people are behaving in state and local elections, there's kind of two models you could apply to why they're just voting for their national party in uh, in local elections, and one is an information story, which is kind of the one I focused on the most. Um, But another one is like an identitarian story, right? Like I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat, like the way that I'm a Jewish, effectively like an ethnic or religious identity. And one of the weird things about Po- the way sorting among populations work is that we can end up in places where at the national level, those things bisect the population, give or take, such that voters who are responsive to information are, you know, like the ones making the determination mm-hmm. because the people who are identitarianly and the Democrat are kind of canceled out by the people who are identitarian Republicans. But at the local level, that's like obviously not true, right? So I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. There are not too many identitarian Republicans around. And if everyone just votes based on their national party group ethnic thing, then they are—we're uh, not going to get—the information-driven voters are not going to do very much.
2: But we do seem to see that governors can transcend this. I mean, it's obviously, you know, a, a bit of an uphill battle to run in a mismatched state, but we do have—we have Republican governors and in one states
1: and, and a couple uh, mayors, too. Yes. So, I mean, Giuliani, Bloomberg, right. Richard Reardon. Again, it's not universal, but it does happen. Um, I, it's mostly because they can be famous, mm-hmm. right? And so there's uh, substantial evidence that for mayors of New York City, for instance, that the crime rate affects their popularity. And it's because they're on the front page of the New York Post and people can uh, can figure out who they are and can, uh, they have a brand independent of parties in a way that a city council person doesn't. Um, the amazing thing is that even where you have a popular mayor, it doesn't tr- go down the level. In one of my papers, I have this story of this guy named Joel Zinberg, who was a running on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and running for city council the same year Bloomberg was about to get 80% of the vote in his Mm. district Just it's the upper he's going to dominate and Zinberg is one of these like perfect resume guys he's got he's a law degree he's a doctor he was endorsed by all the newspapers and his platform was I'm going to do whatever Bloomberg does Uh and he got exactly the same percentage of the vote as George Bush got in the district Uh people had no clue but uh, mayors and governors can break out of this to some degree and one implication of that is that we ought to give more power Mayors and governors, vis-a-vis uh, legislatures, than we might at the national level.
2: Right, I mean, because this is another sort of constitutional nostrum in America that, like, the legislative branch is more. Democratic, and that the executive is—I I, mean—I feel like in in a lot of the at least the rhetoric of this, right? It's like the executive is conceptualized as like might be the king of England, right? And then the legislature, because it's they're they're working in an 18th century context yeah. where like the king has real executive power, and then he's checked. By the
1: parliament, and a lot of that carries over, sort of implicitly. It it goes even more dramatic as we go down, right? So we break the the federal level. We have one executive, Mm -hmm. Um, but as you go down to state and local governments, we have millions of people exercising executive authority. We directly elect them. So in Michigan, you're voting for university trustees, Mm -hmm. and you know, like Texas, there's the railroad commissioner, but it doesn't do railroad. It's very confusing stuff. Um, But we split up executive authority as we go down. If you think at the county level, usually the most important. Important official at the county isn't the county executive, but the district's attorney, right. right? And so we actually divide power, executive authority, as we go down levels of government. Um, when based on what voters are able to do, it would, the opposite would make sense. It may make sense to directly elect the attorney general of the United States. I don't know, but it makes more sense perhaps than it does to directly elect the DA. And rather than having the county executive appoint, appoint
2: right? So it's like we have at least. To the extent that people know anything about anything, pretty good reason to believe that in state government, they know who their governor is. There's a demonstrated ability to say, look, I'm a Democrat, but I like Charlie Baker, right? And so— Perhaps you should concentrate like a lot of authority
1: and, in that off. And states do, I mean, governors, it varies a lot by place, but that state, there has been a trend towards doing this, I think, responsive to almost to these exact trends. Um, giving power to governors is obviously not a complete solution, but voters are pretty good with governors. So there's this really neat Justin Wolfer's paper that shows that uh, um, voters are not completely when there's a, a state-specific a, a economic shock that hits a state um uh, but it also hits everywhere else voters are able to not completely say well hey Things are only going well in Oklahoma because oil prices are up, but they're able to do it a little. Uh And Wolfers notes that they're about as good at doing this as corporate boards are at figuring out whether CEOs are doing well or whether the market's just doing well.
2: But you do see also a a contrary trend, right? I mean, this is part of everything becoming partisan in America, right? Where um, Roy Cooper in North Carolina and now Tony Evers in Wisconsin have both gone through the experience of they win an election. Uh, but state legislative districts are highly gerrymandered, so Republicans in, in Wisconsin, the Democratic uh, candidates won most votes, but the Republican candidates won most seats. And so, what they immediately move to do in the lame duck is start reducing
1: gubernatorial power. Absolutely, and I suspect you'll see more of that also, right? So that as you see these strong splits between the state legislature and the governor, that you're going to see these constitutional fights.
2: Right. I mean, so is there is there any way to because Like, this makes a lot of sense as a sort of abstract process reform, right? But precisely because the legislatures are more entrenched and less accountable, it seems challenging to imagine a circumstance that actually makes them give
1: up power. So in those states where you have that dynamic, then yeah, that's probably true. Uh, On the other hand... um, uh, it's not clear that legislatures regularly or always or universally are engaged in what some people call empire building. Like It's not that, that there's a belief, talk about 18th century beliefs, a uh, belief in Madison and everything that institutions are seeking to maximize their individual power. Um, but at the individual level, that seems not true. So Daryl Levinson has this really nice paper where he shows that, well, look, if you look at the level, say, take Congress versus the president, individual congresspeople don't maximize the power of Congress. They frequently want to maximize the power of the executive if the executive is from the same party or they want to avoid blame or they'd rather be on vacation or whatever it is. And so it's not implausible to imagine that there will be in, that there will be situations in which this uh, kind of increasing executive authority could take place um, for a whole variety of reasons.
2: That's interesting. I, I, let's let's take a break here. And then I, then I want to talk about cities where, where some of this gets even more intense.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
2: Part of the big, like, sorting out of partisanship in America has become that, like, people who live in cities are all Democrats everywhere. And so then that means that local government in, I, I think, like, every major American city is just overwhelmingly dominated by Democratic elected officials. And that then means that as you say, right? Like the most important information is is the information that's on the ballot, but in effect, like the ballots are totally uninformative.
1: Well, so frequently they're actually we've even gotten rid of the fact that they're Democrats. So most local elections are formally nonpartisan, even though everyone's a Democrat in uh-huh. most of these cities anyway. I mean, not every city in the country, the, thing, the small towns or whatever, but in big cities that's the case. And the voters in primaries are uh, very heavily. Uh, the people who show up are going to be very non-representative and not very representative of the uh, broader population.
2: Right. And so then what are the sort of I – mean, you, were, you were telling the story about about Bloomberg and, you know, so you have Bloomberg. He's a successful politician. He's getting reelected. Um, and so it would make sense that he would want to cultivate like – Bloomberg acolytes in the city council, but that doesn't seem to work. And so, I mean, what are the sort of implications
1: of that for the ability to like
2: have agendas in municipal politics?
1: Well, so it, it kind of will depend a bit on the issue that frequently frequently, mayors where they have the power to in a strong mayor system like New York operate through their executive authority and, mm-hmm. yeah, um, or are able to bully city council on issues they don't care about, but on lots of other issues... They're not able to, and city councils devolve into what people call aldermanic privilege. Um, which what is, does that mean? That's uh, <laughs> a great question. It's a, It <laughs> means that on issue, something that's happening specifically in the district, they just allow the city council person who represents that, or alder person who d- represents that district, to make the decision. So if there's a zoning change happening in Greenwich Village, the member from Greenwich Village gets to make the determination regardless of its citywide effect.
2: So that's basically a... Um I mean, to, to have a positive frame, right? Like, this is the spirit of collegiality, right? When I you hear members of Congress talking about, like, the toxic climate of partisanship and, like, everyone's at war all the time, right? Like, this is the opposite. Yeah, it's like, pork. We're, we're all Democrats. So, if John's got a thing in his district, John gets his way. And if Sally has a thing in her district, she gets her way
1: and we're all getting along. Absolutely. I mean, it it is a uh, less conflict-driven Version of politics we also can call. I mean, it's the same is the basically the same politics of pork spending, right? You get the bridge in your district. You get the bridge in your district. You get the bridge in your district, and this can have benefits. It's another way to organize the legislature that's different from partisan competition, right? Uh-huh. So, in where we imagine partisan competition, organize the legislature around an agenda or something you would like to achieve. This is a way of just saying everybody gets a little a little bit of a taste. It can lead to some problems, though, and the problems that can it can create, I think, should be pretty clear, but it's we can end up in a dynamic in which um, we tax more than anyone would want. So in the pork sense, uh, that everyone's, if everyone's most committed to keeping the bridge in their district, the result will be that we tax at a level to pay for a bridge in everybody's district mm-hmm. um, and through what people call a universal log roll. And we end up in a suboptimal outcome because no one's willing to give up their pork unless they know everybody else is going to, but there's no institution to broker that deal Similarly in the land use context, if every single council person can stop a project in their district, the result will be less housing construction, even if everyone in the city would prefer to have a little more housing Right. So I,
2: I think we should we should we should try to cash that out because I think a lot of people don't don't always get this, right? I mean, we we talk about housing. Um, we, we did a, a housing episode with, with Jenny Schutz before. And you know, something I hear from people is, oh, we should build more housing. And then other people say, like, well, this is just never gonna change, right? Like people don't want. New stuff in their neighborhood. It's it's noise. It's traffic. Like what? What are you going to do, right? But your point is, it, it doesn't. The decision doesn't have to be made on the basis of what do I want in my neighborhood, right? Like in theory, you could have an agenda that was like citywide. There's going to be some more stuff in every neighborhood and that means yes there will be more traffic in your neighborhood but also you rattle off some big list of benefits
1: that would exist economic growth Lower housing prices, yeah, whatever. Um, two things. One is that you might imagine that that fits everybody's interests in the sense that I might, when we say not in my backyard, you're kind of implicitly saying it would be okay if it was in somebody else's right. backyard, but not in my backyard, and I'm willing might be willing to make a deal across those issues. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that this actually describes at least renters' preferences. So Michael Hankinson has shown that renters, homeowners are a little different, but renters particularly are will that's the way their preferences are structured. They're like still skeptical about things in their neighborhood, but they're they might be willing to make a deal if there was a little bit in everybody's district. or mm-hmm. there was, And so one thing I've proposed is we should structure decision-making to access those preferences rather than other preferences, which are we should have something I call a zoning budget. Mm-hmm. That if we decide how much housing we want. And then you structurally make it such that until that number is achieved, you can't downzone or sh- there's a faster process for getting projects approved. And the specifics you can go into if you're interested. But the idea is that we want politics operating at the policymaking determination: how much housing do we need? Not at the level of I got to keep mine for my neighborhood.
2: Well, because like you, you know, you were talking about about pork spending and how that can that can go up too high. But then the the converse of that, right, is that we do like set the sales tax rate across the unit, right? Right. If you could get a special lower rate in your (laughs) district, like everybody would push for that, but you just can't, right? Like institutionally and structurally, you can say we should have lower taxes, but then you have to write a budget in which that works.
1: And on top of it, the making decision at the citywide level or at the budget level or at the statewide, depending on whatever you're talking about, um, it activates different interest groups. If a proposal to build a new housing project in just one neighborhood comes the people who should be in favor of more housing who are basically employers and municipal unions aren't activated because like an empl- what J.P. Morgan in New York cares about in housing politics is that would like there to be a lot more housing because then it could pay its workers less and get the, they'd have the same real wage. If you make the level at the level of one neighborhood, like, well, J.P. Morgan doesn't care. It's too small an issue. Whereas the people in that neighborhood care a lot. If you make the decision at the level of the citywide or the na- statewide, then employers are activated in politics where neighbors may be slightly deactivated in the mm-hmm. sense that they um, you know, they don't know if the project's coming in their neighborhood or somebody else's neighborhood or it's not uh, like an aggressive attack on their neighborhood. And so the procedural choice not only uh activates citywide preferences versus just local preferences, but gets different players involved.
2: Right. And so we saw this in in California, right? I mean, ultimately uh Scott Wiener's upzoning bill it didn't didn't pass, but it got uh a number of state legislators were for it. And critically, you started to see uh, major state labor unions were for it. And employers. And employers. And they wouldn't—this the kind of groups that wouldn't weigh in at like a community
1: meeting. Yeah, it would just be uh, weird, right? So right. Like, like what does state AFS me care about something happening in an individual district? And same thing with like what does you know, Facebook care about a single town? Ta- and that's crazy. Um, but if we make decisions at a higher level of government, we get different people involved and we might see the— the ability of pro-growth coalitions to form through that, through that procedural mechanism. Mm-hmm. So the law here is serving to codify and to organize politics and not just be a product of it.
2: Right. So, you know, uh, another thing we, we were talking about labeling before in the in the European context, but I've always been sort of uh, intrigued by the way that in Canada, they just like have there's like different parties at I mean, the different not, levels
1: of government, not absolutely everywhere, but you do see this. The best version of this is Vancouver, mm-hmm. where you have a completely different municipal set of parties than you have at any level. They're, they're they don't they don't exist at other levels. And then at the provincial level, the parties don't quite mean the same thing they'd mean at the mm-hmm. national level, and they do, and they it's a little, a little a little different. But at the local level, you see the emergence of purely local political parties mm-hmm. in Vancouver, the nonpartisan alliance. They they've changed over time. It's a little less steady. Vision Vancouver. Um, and this would be a way of giving voters information about what it is the city is doing without it having to be a pure referendum on, you know, what Justin Trudeau is up to that week.
2: right? And this is, you know, reflects the fact that you could have – like, people could have preferences about what their city government is doing that are – you might weight the issues differently, right? So, like, education is – very important to a lot of people, particularly parents, school-age kids. And Education is something that, uh, like in, in D.C. at least, because it's a city and a state, right? Like that, the district government does a lot with education. And the federal government is like not that much with it, right? So if you agree with one philosophy on this topic, it might make sense to really prioritize it in your vote in one place, deprioritize it elsewhere. But as long as the labels all kind of meld together, people don't
1: think yeah, that way. Yeah, it's very hard to get if you're a— a uh, pro school choice Democrat or a pro um pro anti-school choice Democrat. And the choices are Democrats versus Republicans. You can't even tell who's who among the Democrats when you're voting in a primary. Um, you know, it's very hard to access those preferences and you're probably not going to vote for a Republican regardless. Because right. right, you know, um and so it's completely plausible to imagine people have these preferences. Uh, there's a famous quote, Fiora LaGuardia. Mm-hmm reportedly said, um, that there's no Democratic or Republican Republican way to sweep the streets. Um, and people take this to mean there's no potential ideological position across local issues, but that's a cracked position, right? It right. doesn't make any sense, right? So in fact, there are ideological positions about sweeping the streets. Should uh-huh. we privatize garbage or not? Um, this is a uh, thing you can imagine ideological dispute over. There certainly are kind ideological disputes over education, ideological disputes over policing, but they just don't coalesce into partisan kind of competition.
2: Right. And I mean, I mean, the, the garbage thing is a, I always think a great example because like, yeah, like there obviously is a Republican way to do street cleaning and garbage collection, <laughs> right? And it's it's to privatize the the services and there's a, you know, bust up public sector unions and presumably get a more cost effective kind of uh, approach and It shows up in the fact that like so much more of the content of local government, because this is where I think like the Guardia has it right, is that so much more of the content of local government is the direct provision of things, right? Whereas the federal government, with the important exception of the military, is like not that many like...
1: Boots on the ground. Yeah, no. Most government employees in America are employees of local governments, and most things that get built get built by state and local governments. It's that's has always been the case, and is still the case. The kind of one form of criticism that comes of this theory is – Paul Peterson is the academic – the idea is that uh, uh, mobile capital means that local government doesn't have a lot of capacity to make decisions. They're just going to go – if they if they do something that mobile capital doesn't like, then mobile capital will just leave. And uh, this is a belief that people have. It seems to me um, unsupported by the evidence. So cities do all sorts of stuff that mobile capital doesn't like. So New York City has a very high income tax. Um it's not like mobile mobile rich residents have said, nah, New York City, not gonna live there. Um uh, cities cities because of agglomeration economies are quite sticky. And so they have capacity to make decisions. And because they have capacity to make decisions, they can have a, there's a politics around what it is they do.
2: Right. And let's actually take another break and then I, I wanna talk it more about this mobility because it's crucial. You were phrasing this in terms of mobile capital, which I feel is almost like conspiratorial, right? But but there's also just, you know, the basic idea of um, what's it called? Tibu uh, sorting, -hmm. Sorting, right? So that's like, well, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about like, does local government work? Because people just pick where they... You know, you you move, right? So, so you're voting with your feet. So there's not going to be a problem here. So it's like if people are living in Boston, then by definition they're happy with that. And if they weren't
1: happy, like they'd live in Worcester. This strikes me as just wrong. Um, it's not that people there isn't some sorting around public policy, but that there's a trade-off because people choose both public policies and other things they like about places. And it turns out that living in Los Angeles is very nice or living in Santa Monica is very nice. And people, when they move to Santa Monica, may be choosing the beach or they may be choosing the public (laughs) policies. Um, It seems more likely to be they're choosing the beach, but, you know, uh, your mileage may vary. I've argued that there is a trade-off between sorting, the efficiency of sorting, and the efficiency of choosing the other things in your life, what people call agglomeration, the benefits of density, that by conditioning public policy on where you are physically, we are basically taxing your ability to choose where you would like to live other than public policies.
2: Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's a difference between sort of Suburbs and cities in this regard, right? So it's like if you like work for the federal government, you work in politics, you want to be in the d c area and you, like sincerely, in a completely wholehearted way, like want to live in a single family neighborhood on like a, a random cul-de-sac. um you have, like, a bunch of different jurisdictions that broadly speaking fit that model
1: absolutely. And we there's a lot of evidence that among those jurisdictions, tax increases are punished. Um, by low, reduced housing prices and school quality is rewarded,
2: right? So it so it works, right? Because it's like the suburb is this kind of like generic commodity product, right? Like we we produce a lot of them. They're cut across jurisdictions, but if you if you like living in the city. Like, have a lot
1: of choices. There's only one city, right? Um, I mean, it wor- the suburbs thing it works until it doesn't, right? So it works except that where we have a limit on the number of them, right? Or, you know, that right. the inner ring suburbs. There's there is in fact a limit to the <laughs> number of people who can live there. Is limited, um, particularly when they res- restrict housing construction as much as they do. Um, uh, but yes, for cities, your choices are much more limited, and this has pretty dramatic effects. So one implication is that if democracy isn't working very well, then your ability to choose your policies, if you're an urban person, is way lower than your ability to choose your policies if you're a suburban person.
2: Right, and then there's like – it sort of compounds, right, because you have – like metro economies are built around their central cities, but neither the democratic institutions nor the sorting institutions actually function that well. And it it seems to me, I mean, that's a more perhaps profound problem than it's always given credit for, that like everybody, whether you like – you know, like hipster neighborhoods or not, right? It would be in your interest
1: to have cities be well governed. A functioning city. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence that the quality of center city institutions has pretty big effects on even suburban property values, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So like if the center city economy is doing well, or if the center city economy has good institutions, like good universities, good museums, it's a big effect on your life no matter where you live in it because you mm-hmm. go there, you use them, whatever it is. But the political system we've developed is not well suited to achieve, necessarily well, su- well suited to achieving those things.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something, you know, post-Trump 2016, we all have to talk about Midwestern swing states all the time. And, you know, I mean, this is something I I, I think about a lot with regard to Michigan and Wisconsin in particular, that, you know, these are states whose, like, biggest cities have reached a fairly dismal kind of state and some of that is precisely because of the like indifference and hostility of like white flight suburban
1: voters but like ultimately there's a price to be paid for that Absolutely, I mean, there's a price. I mean, thinking about the national political implications is a, is, a, right. is is another step. But like, there is certainly a effect on the kind of lit life in these places, right? And right. so it's also it's. I mean, I'd also say that the uh, effect on whether the Detroit Metro region is economically successful of having not so great uh, having built, let's just say the problems created by um, uh, uh, the the difficulties of local democracy and the difficulties of sorting for center cities is you know like. Real, Whether it's determinative is another question, right? Sure. So like it's also like the auto industry moved – you know, like right. that kind of you – know, so it's a um, – it is a real problem. I mean it's precisely because it's not determinative, right? It's like cities
2: have limited ability to control their own destiny. So whether the democratic institutions encourage them to respond intelligently to these shocks like makes a big difference in whether or not they – actually do right
1: and And it makes a really big difference in other places also right so like the absence of democratic institutions that are likely to be accommodative of growth in rich regions Mm -hmm. has really big effects on both rich regions and poor regions Mm -hmm, right so mm -hmm. that it's like the Ability of people to move to San Francisco mm-hmm. is limited because of both its the the way its suburban jurisdictions work, the way its center city works, and this has big effects on the national economy. How big? It's a big, a big debate among economists, but it's a quite big, and it has the um, the effect of kind of messing up a lot of what we imagined the way we imagined a federal system works. So through 1970, we kind of had this idea of what people call conver- the convergence hypothesis that people that st- the poorest state and the richest state would get close together for two reasons. One is poor people would move from poor states to rich states in order to find work. And the other one is that capital, like you know, factories would move to places where they could hire people who uh, would be paid less right. and the effect would be convergence. Um, but the- And it happened. It happened until 1970, 1980, depending on how when you measure. And now it's not happening. And one major reason for this is that our state and local politics is organized to um, exclude in our rich regions and- Uh, you know, uh, we're not quite able, they're not, it's not accommodative of those, of those. Right.
2: So, so, you know, people, uh, this is something I've written about is people don't move as much to wealthy regions as they used to. So that, that depresses uh, convergence. But, but something you've also written about is that there's, there's, Aspects of policy that make it hard to leave declining regions.
1: Yeah, so there, there are limits on moving in that there are be even – so the one you and I have both written a lot is zoning. Um, right. uh, but it's other things like occupational licensing regimes make it hard to move between places. Um, but leaving is also quite difficult. So you often lose your benefits when you leave um, because of difference, either because of it's like operationally difficult um, or because it's um, – the laws are different. You want to move to Texas, but Texas has lower benefits. Um, there are all sorts of things that make leaving hard. Um, in addition to make moving in good Mm -hmm. or easy. And so the result is, I've written, we're stuck, which Mm -hmm. is that we've created all sorts of barriers, both on the entry and exit side from moving to jobs. And this is pretty big macroeconomic implications. So the one that is most focused on is the the kind of direct effect on wealth, Mm -hmm. right? So like if you live in Detroit and you could move to San Francisco, you would be paid more. And that has a big effect on wealth. But it has a big effect on other things also. So one is monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's harder for the Fed to do its job if there's a lot of unemployment in one place and and, and not very much unemployment in the other one because you'd be worried about inflation on one side and not on the other. This reduces the degree of what people call it. it's an, is the US an optimal currency area. Well if San Francisco and Detroit are really different from one another, then, you know, it's less less the case. It also makes federalism itself work you know work less well because We rely on states and local governments to do so much stuff. If poor people aren't moving to where rich people are, then the ability of rich, of to to use the money inside states and cities to fund programs, we do a lot of redistribution through states and cities, is limited. So the ability, uh, like if Palo Alto wants to do lots and lots of economic redistribution, it's kind of like, you know, shruggy face emoticon. Okay, I actually assign a really nice short essay you once wrote on, does inequality inside New York City matter, right? Right? Um, And one of the points of this is that on one level, it's just a measurement question, right? Like uh, on the other hand, um, the existence of poor people in rich jurisdictions does matter, because it allows you to take the money from the rich people and give it to the right. Public I mean, bill.
2: you redistribute, and you also have public services right Right. so like new york city has a you know like nice public library system right and that once had a great subway system (laughs) right it's from time to time has one (laughs) Uh, but you know but like that's that's a thing right so it's like if you have a city that has become impoverished it's very challenging for that city to have like nice parks and playgrounds to renovate its schools and and do other kinds of stuff like that that you know in uh Affluent city, I mean, like middle class people go to the park with their kids and stuff. They're not services for the poor, but the poor have a particular need to have those things available. They have worse private options, but also their own tax base doesn't doesn't support it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a lo- and many local services take this form. So, schools are kind of the biggest one. is their a method of redistribution, but they're not a method of redistribution because it's like a pure tax and transfer or anything
2: right. right. It's like if there were no schools, um and taxes were way, way lower, like my kid would still go to school right right yes. um.
1: right absolutely and but so it has this effect of being redistributive but not through, you know, it's not like a Graduating, uh, graduate income tax right a big a
2: big a big tax and transfer so you mentioned licensing briefly which i think is something we have not uh, broached
1: previously on on the weeds and like what's what's the deal so Occupational licensing is probably, the, in, in aggregate, the single largest labor market policy we have in the United States. Okay. About 25% of workers need a license to work. Okay, um, And so the most famous of this are doctors and lawyers Sure. Um, uh, who, in order to be a lawyer, you need to have a license to be a lawyer. You need to pass a bar exam. But uh, licensing regimes have kind of two effects that we can talk about. One is that they're generally the kind of a general supply constraint, sure. right? So that uh, the, we we justify them because they supposedly kind of assure people of quality, um, but the result is that there are fewer right. of these people and the effect is that that is that prices go up. Right. Um, and so the ordinary justification is like a market for lemons type mm-hmm. justification, which is like people would lose confidence if every time they went to hire a lawyer, it was just some weird snake oil salesman Um, Maybe not a salesman, a lawyer, but you know what I mean? Like a a shy student So that by having this credentialing thing, it ensures that people are confident in the market and there's a high quality. Um, The evidence of this for most occupational licensing is not so good. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And so it has this general negative effect. The case against licensing has now been made by virtually everyone. Right. Um, uh, not every There's some people who do like it, but um, there's a huge wealth, huge growing literature about why it's problematic. But it has a particular problem for these interstate questions because licensing is frequently done at the state level or even the local level, and this makes it particularly hard to move between places. And there are certain populations that are particularly burdened by this. So the kind of classic one is military spouses. Mm -hmm. You have to move because your spouse is in the military, and then at one point, you're a licensed hair braider, and then you go to another state, and you're not a licensed hair braider anymore, and that's like a big problem. You can't work.
2: Wait, and the the sort of noteworthy thing is the, the downward spread of this, right? So like doctor and lawyer are like the classic... Like, quote unquote, the professions, right? You know, from time immemorial, there have been these kind of guild like rules. And also, doctors and lawyers are rich, and so nobody cares. Um, But when you have one of the reasons they're rich, (laughs) (laughs) sure, (laughs) is it's excluded. Well, no, but from a mobility standpoint, right? So it's like, oh, a lawyer has to pass a new test to go to a new state, whatever, right? Uh, But when you have people who are like, your job is you're selling real estate, you're cutting hair, you fix broken locks, you know, these are like pretty like bleh, middling type jobs where you might think these are exactly the kind of people who should just flow to places where there is more job growth and more wealth, right? You're providing locally based services. You want to go where the customers are. But if you have to relicense, it's
1: costly to do so. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real problem. I, I, one thing, I only thing I'd resist there is that doctors and lawyers are clearly like actually a really big problem. Doc, medicine's a pretty big, large part, big, large part of our economy. Um, so and, wait, wait,
2: wait, 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 well, I guess medicine. You know, people always hesitate because it's like you want like unlicensed doctors. Well, I, so you know, I mean, th- we, we, lopping we, we, off parts of your brain. I mean, stuff.
1: we're in the weeds. Uh, but it's uh, <laughs> it's there's a lot of there's a lot of medical practice, like a lot of legal practice that could probably be done by other licensed professionals, like nurse practitioners practitioners or, um, you know, the scope of practice question is a big one. But the it surely is the case that I don't want an unlicensed person lopping off a part of my brain. Um, <laughs> I like my brain. It's, uh, but it is a uh, you have seen some substantial efforts under in both Democratic and Republican states, and by, pushed by the Obama administration, particularly. But the Trump administration is not uh, not hostile to this to uh, encourage interoperability, mm-hmm. so that licensing it's easier to move across place. So you actually seen some improvement in this field, right?
2: Because this is an interesting sort of, I mean, there's the basic question of like, do we need these scope of practice rules? Are they too strict, right? But there's also like, why is this a state function?
1: Right. It's a great question. I mean, it's mostly a state function. I mean, the two stories you'd tell is that one is that it's a state function because it's a state function. So the the people who've pushed it like it being a state function, they've won, they're happy. Um, uh, Congress doesn't get involved because, I don't know, they're busy. I don't know what they're busy doing. They're busy doing something. And there, in fact, may be constitutional limits on the ability of Congress to get involved in some of these areas or certainly um, uh, uh, limits on practice. Um, But kind of as a, a broader policy matter, it's like, it's not clear that for many of these things, there's anything particularly local about them. So you, you might imagine for some things like taxi drivers, maybe you want them to know something about mm-hmm. the place, and so you could maybe justify things that way. Probably not. Uh, people have GPS. You know, It, it seems to work fine, um, uh, but perhaps something about real estate broker, that kind of thing. On the other hand, many other things- have no local content whatsoever. It's not clear what the local content of interior decorating is. Right. And this goes back to, I mean,
2: it's fundamental questions about, you know, what is the virtues of centralization versus decentralization that, you know, particularly with something like medicine, right, where it is, I think, both the case that there is a bona fide safety concern, but also a bona fide interest group capture concern. That, like, to me, the federal government has more. Pointy headed, like know it alls who can possibly sort this out correctly. And the state legislature is much more likely to just be like some guys yucking it up at the country club with their buddies from the local. Doctors' Association. But like whether you think that makes sense hinges a lot on do you believe that the states are inherently more democratic
1: and that there should be like a strong presumption that they take the lead on everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question is like where your preference for the amount of devolution comes from. Mm-hmm. So that if you have – if you are starting from kind of ex nihilo and you're saying like what – how much devolution should I have, your belief in the quality of these institutions – is will be very, very, very important to making that determination. On the other hand, if your belief is is driven by experience, how well has it worked when I've given things to the federal government or given things to the states? Then you've already incorporated how well these governments are working when you've made the in kind of in your kind of experiential uh, experiential determination or your experience drawn from um, from practice. One thing I'd say is that if these institutions are getting worse over time or if there's been change over time, then that should dramatically change your priors about these things. And so to the extent that I can convince you that state elections have gotten worse over time, then whatever it is your belief about how much devolution there should be, it should go down somewhat.
2: So, you know, so so we talked about this. So it's a case if, if state elections are getting worse, that's a case for centralizing power with governors and for centralizing power with the federal government. Uh, but is there anything we can do to – uh, halt or or partially roll
1: back that trend. So yes, there's one thing I'd say is that like the again the effect is a little more complicated. And it's, this is like me being an annoying academic, but let's I will do it. I, I, let's do it. We're in the weeds. It's um a um that it could drive you to be in favor of more devolution in one way, which is that if you think you're getting less devolution for every. Policy amount amount you're getting, you might want to devolve more in order to get the same amount of difference between places. Okay. So well, you see, it's like an income effect versus substitution effect. If you're, but could we make state elections better? Yeah, yes. Huh. So um, a, a couple of things. One is that first off, the giving more power to the governor, for thing, would make state elections work better. Other proposals I've made are um, involve things about giving voters information directly. So uh, either putting the, which parties in power on the ballot, or ultimately, here's a simple one: you could put on the ballot national Democrats and state Democrats and national Republicans and state Republicans to encourage people to make distinctions between these things. Um, we could subsidize local media. Um, we could change rules about who's a member of a party, make it easier to switch between parties between state and local elections, uh, between federal and state elections um, such that the the base of those parties shifts over time. Um, we could – I mean the – that uh, you can imagine getting weird. So one weird idea I've had is that in the context of nonpartisan elections, we could allow interest groups to make on-ballot endorsements. Okay. So that you could see in the context of a nonpartisan election, again, it's most local elections who does the sierra club endorse mm-hmm. who does the uh, and who does the the National chamber of commerce endorse and that you might imagine that over time this would coalesce into something like party endorsements that you could have uh, you, that in san francisco you could see on the dem- on the primary ballot whether the progs or the mods endorse the candidate and voters will be able to uh, to, uh, to, ref- to reference that when voting and so we can imagine changing the voting process in order to facilitate local opinion to kind of improve local democracy and the last Thing I'd say about this is that like it's actually really important to do this and to think about this like we are a big country with lots and lots of different people and making state and local democracy work in the context of a big diverse country where people are really different from one another is a really, really, really valuable thing to do because it's, you know, people from Rhode Island are just different from people in Texas. They have different preferences. And if we can accommodate their difference, if we could develop a, do- a democracy that can accommodate their difference, it would be an attractive thing to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the dysfunction that people feel in the system does come from the sort of collapse of real functional federalism as a way to address people's uh, desires for these kinds of things that, you know, when everything is, when people feel that they are locally outnumbered and therefore state politics is completely futile, right? And there's like nothing happening in Idaho government, um, that it, it, it fuels a lot of the sort of unreality. That
1: dominates national politics. Yeah, and they have to act. It pushes them to be an angry or interested in national politics, right? So that if right. you're a if you're a you know Idaho Democrat, well, like, what are you paying attention to in the state legislature? What is anyone paying attention to in the state legislature? The absence of this kind of rich competitive local democracies encourages people to be involved at a higher level of government, which has the effect also of making state and local democracy work. Right, so and bad- I think.
2: And I think you know we sort of talk a lot about polarization at at Vox, you know, it features in in so many of our articles. But I think something people don't always realize is that the the institutional history of the parties in America is that they used to be, in effect, national federations of state parties, and that there would be a Republican Party, Democratic Party franchise in each state, and they were actually quite different, right? And then the national party was like a a network.
1: Right. I mean, so it's gone back and forth over time. Mm-hmm. It's not just a single unidimensional trend or anything. Um national politics is constantly infecting well, I affecting mean, like a, it's like sure. thing, <laughs> But it's certainly coming that national politics will be a big part of state politics quite frequently. So, one famous example is like a Hamilton and Burr campaigning for state legislature when the state legislature were choosing the electors mm-hmm. in order to affect the presidential election. Um But yeah, absolutely, it's the nationalization of parties is a really is a a very consequential change. And it's relatively recent that we've reached our kind of purely nationalized it's the In the 60s and 70s, you saw much more ticket splitting and much more differential local parties than you do today. Yeah,
2: and, and, and you see it when people think about the presidential primaries, right, that of course there's a difference between Iowa and South Carolina and stuff. But in the modern day, the difference is that the demographic content of the Democratic Party varies from state to state. So the Democratic Party of Nebraska is very white and the Democratic Party of South Carolina is very African-American, but there's not a like state quality to it and so in fact the like there are not that many democrats in the all white plain states but the ones who are there are seem are like super left wing
1: yeah absolutely right and so the and the, it's definitely the case that the state parties you end up with these like the the california republican party would be like pretty comfortable in in, in alabama not quite, right but <laughs> like you know like like and no, i wouldn't be crazy um uh it's not like it's reached the median vote or anything the um Yeah, so I mean, that's that's I mean, you 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 don't
2: you don't have in California a version. You could imagine a world, and and Arnold Schwarzenegger presented this, but for government, but not but but not as an institution, like a recognizably version of the Republican Party, a business oriented, friendly to law enforcement political party that tries to be suitable to the structure of public opinion in California.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you but you don't see it, right? Right. Um, I mean, and it's like. It's quite bad that you don't see it. It would be good if we had constant contestation over these things. The other thing I'd say is that – so there's this kind of long-running set of ideas about the way parties interact with federalism, and I think they've got it entirely backwards. And so they call this the political safeguards of federalism, and the idea is that these state parties, that the ones you were talking about before, the federated state parties, um, operate to protect state uh, state autonomy against federal encroachment because the the senators come from these state parties or whatever. Um, and I think this is entirely backwards. That um, in fact, what parties are are they don't they do the opposite. They don't safeguard federalism at all. The parties are the source that reduces federalism in this respect. Um, but that way of thinking about the world actually has like a infects a lot of and has and some kind of weird view, people have weird opinions about politics. So one here's one that I've always that I've written a lot. About that, people get quite animated about um, is there's this big movement on the right to repeal the 17th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Michael Levin, you know, but Antonin Scalia, like all these people are really into and their idea is that repeal the 17th Amendment provided that uh, uh voters rather than state legislatures elect senators. Mm-hmm. Um and they have this idea that if you do if you repeal the 17th Amendment, then like it would make state politics great again. That that you know, that's the sure. that's the idea of it. Um but it would almost certainly make state politics even worse than it is now, and so here's the evidence. And this was actually debated at the time of the uh, when the 17th Amendment was enacted. Um, I- that it would make state legislative elections think that they don't turn on party now, turn on the even more because people right. would be electing senators. So here's the, the the really famous example is that when Lincoln and Douglas were having the Lincoln and Douglas debates, they weren't on the ballot. Right. People were voting for state legislature, um, but people who were vote were not like, oh, well, how's the road between Chicago and Springfield? They were focused on questions of slavery and all, that, uh, all the stuff that's the subject of the Lincoln and Douglas debates. Um, and uh, the repealing the 17th Amendment would take our... Not so well functioning state legislative elections and render them, you know, completely nas- uh, proxies for national politics. Um, one little uh, interesting thing is that Lincoln. It's, I, the evidence is, I think, pretty clear that Lincoln got more votes in that Senate race. Uh-huh. But uh, because of the way the districting was done, was pre obviously pre Baker vs Carr. Um, yeah, you know, there you go. There you
2: go. Okay, so but before I let you know, what what did I miss here? What what should what should I ask you about?
1: Um, what should you ask me about it? It's a great question. Um, I, in fact, I should have been ready for it because I know you end the things with these. Uh, um, you know, I guess what I'd say is that uh, we kind of covered a lot of the field of what I um, have been working on. The one thing I'd say is that this way of thinking about politics can have pretty dramatic ways of way you look at lots of issues in politics. And so one is that if you start thinking about the way party structure affects the way we um, the way politics operates more broadly, you can have insights into how even national politics works. And so here's an example. Um, we have a big question about why American politics is so polarized. You talk about it in Vox a lot. It happens everywhere. We talk about polarization all the time. Um, and one thing I've noted and, and, and written a bit about is that um, you've seen crazy things happening in politics everywhere in the world. Right. Um uh, um, but it hasn't taken the form of polarization. Um and so sometimes we're just like, well, Germany's just different than the United States. They have uh, you know, they have their own politics, we have our own politics. You know, nothing could be more American than polarization. Like you can't imagine a German Fox News. Sure. Um on the other hand, if you think about structures and the way structures organize preferences. You might say, well, what if the exa- what's happening in Germany is exactly the same as what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Britain is exactly the same as what's happening in terms of the way preferences, something weird happened with preferences, um, uh, but we have different institutional structures for right. organizing our politics. Um, and I've argued that, in fact, this actually makes a lot of sense, that we've seen in countries where we never thought we'd see third parties, so Westminster systems. Um, uh, we've seen the rise of third parties everywhere, and so right. we have third party systems in Canada, and basically, Duverger's law is not true, mm-hmm. um, except in the United States. The question is like, why? What explains this? Um, and uh, I think the answer is that the uh, the openness of our political parties to contestation means that crazies. Right. Uh, Deci- so Trump Trump has really proven you right here. Because I you should uh, to, to take full credit, you wrote this before he I did came write out. this before Trump. It's true. <laughs> actually, the actually taking credit is an important job, part of yeah. being an academic. Uh, I feel like the um the Boris Johnson um and kind of the broader structure of British politics is kind of the, they've started to move towards primaries. Right. And as a result, all of the crazies are going into the parties rather right. than outside of it.
2: Right. Party. So this to this point. In, in America, if you are A rich guy who's famous and is media savvy and has some kooky ideas that there's a constituency for, you can waltz into the Republican Party primary and become its candidate, right? And in other countries, they have more closed party systems, so you might have to waltz out of the party, the way Ross Perot did right. previously, right? I mean, it's you can see both in, in each function, but Trump could look at Perot and say, okay, like a lot of people voted for this guy, but it amounted to nothing. But if you take that
1: in the tent, right. it can be very powerful. Right, And so the... Which one's better is actually kind of an interesting question. So, I mean, uh, um, uh, in America, this creates polarization because, uh, on the other hand, in other countries, you get these very strong third parties, whether you have a a PR system or in a Westminster system. And that makes democracy not work that well because you either end up getting – like the the two main parties in coalition with one another, so we don't have a contestation across the the kind of center point of politics, or you get situations where we don't know who the majority winner is because twenty percent of voters are voting for some third entity in the context of a Westminster system.
2: Right. Well, I mean, it seems like you can have. I don't know. I feel like you can make a case for the American system where the parties get polarized and you get a lot of gridlock or the German system where you get a bland centrist coalition and you get sort of gridlock. But then like the really bad one is you look at some of these UK polls where it's like four or five different parties, none of which is more than 25 percent. And then you have to like consult statistical modelers to tell what's going to Happen, it, right? It that like, does seem like a bad result, right? Yes. It's like the outcome of the election has like nothing to do with the structure of public opinion and everything to do with the happenstance of like district boundaries.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, I think we can agree that democracy in Britain going eh, not so hot,
2: right? Well, it's why, in some ways, right, the idea I mean, I know the correct thing for cosmopolitan American liberals is to be horrified by Boris Johnson, but from a Broader elections and political system standpoint, it's actually is better if there is going to be a influential right-wing populist movement in Britain for it to actually possess like a major political party and be on the ballot. In a real normal well, way. Well, I mean, yes
1: and no, right? So the um the downside, of course, is that you end up with the two mainstream choices being very, very, very far away from the median voter, right? right? So which is true in Britain, um, and so it's uh it's not clear exactly which one's most likely to produce produce policies again at this structural level to be to be, which will be further from what the people want, um, because you can end up. Any of these situations can result where even a the the point here is that the movement of a very small fringy group of people um, in any country can result in it being very hard for the majority of people to get what they want. A cheering thought.
2: And with that, thank you. Um, and thanks as always uh, to our producer Jeffrey Geld. Uh, it's a fun fun to contemplate the uh, doom of political systems. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday.